Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for joining us for a very, very special episode of Deep Dive. We are welcoming back the incredible Mike Scott of the Waterboys to Deep Dive, probably their most essential album, if you ask me anyway, 1985's This Is The Sea. And here's the reason why, because this incredible seminal album is being released on a six disc deluxe version called 1985 on the 23rd this week. It includes six discs, 95 tracks, two thirds of them have never been heard before. There's a hardback book, it's a hardcover book that's included in the box that Mike wrote. It's the entire story of the creation of This Is The Sea from beginning to end. All the contributions of the band members, who did what, demos, everything. Now obviously we're not gonna deep dive 95 tracks, but Mike was nice enough to join us to talk about the ones that ended up on the final album. That includes things like Don't Bang The Drum and the immortal The Hole Of The Moon. So Mike comes back to do all of this with us in preparation for the release of 1985, the deluxe version of This Is The Sea which I can't wait for everyone to hear. We are so, so lucky to have this. Mike is one of the greatest there ever was. Okay, so as I said, Mike, when we talked a year and a half ago or whatever it was, this was just starting to gestate. And I remember you mentioning that you were just starting to write notes about each song in mm. on This Is The Sea. And I'm curious when... There is so much good stuff to be had in this box set. Six CDs, 95 tracks... Or yeah, ninety-five tracks and a two hundred and twenty-page book, and mm. that's the part mm. that's kind of blowing my mind. There's the book. There it is. Okay, he's holding it up. Did you always intend for this to be a book? Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I did. Yes. Really. Yeah. Yeah, and the the track list of the album provides the chapter headings for the book. Perfect. Each consecutive Perfect. song is the opportunity for me to continue the narrative. Yeah. Did you, I mean, uh, it makes perfect sense. If any album deserves a deluxe treatment like this, it's this one. Um, when you, when you look back on your own career, do you feel like this is a high point for you or do you feel like your audience has made it such? Does that make sense? Uh, to me, it, to me, there are two records that the War Boys made that, that people look on as having embodied cultural moments. Yeah. Uh, that bigger than the Waterboys career. And also be this is the Sea and Fisherman's Blues. But that doesn't mean that I think they're necessarily the best records. They're just the ones that people think of in that way. And, and I recognize that that I and the Waterboys take taken so many different turns in the music that that we we almost unwittingly shook off the pursuit, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So the people who stayed with us are the people who who whose souls were touched in a particular way that makes them stick with the Water Boys. Yeah. And we do pick up new fans as well, which I'm always grateful for. And, and, and of course, we're not finished yet, so you never know what's going to happen with the yeah. next record on the line. But yeah. this is, the, is one of those two records that, that people look back on and see it as, as occupying a place in our shared culture. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I mean, we're here to talk about this album, but one thing that I've grown to appreciate about your latter-day work is that it feels like each new Waterboys album reflects what Mike Scott is into at that time. Yeah. Something that's interesting him. When we talked about All Souls Hill, so many of those songs have kind of like dance beats and, you know, and um, 
drum machines and you were just tinkering with like samples and stuff like that made a water boys album out of it which is not something you would have thought so as as you get older do you feel more i don't know creative or inventive or exploratory it's the same spirit of creativity that was in in the making of this is the sea it's exactly the same really uh, but i think i think I think uh, I think I'm, I, I write better melodies now. I write better lyrics now. I think I sing better now. Uh, so in many ways, I think the Waterboys make better records now. But uh-huh. of course, this is he's got the fire of yeah. being made by twenty-five-year-old people. Okay, when you how much material did you have on hand or collected in boxes or on hard drives or whatever to begin curating all of this? Because ninety-five tracks is a yeah. lot and i'm wondering if even that tells the whole story i, I think it does does tell oh, the whole important story okay i could have could have done more but but really that was this is all the good stuff and and i, I have a couple of boxes of cassettes from those sessions uh-huh. most of in, in those days pre pre digital recording um most most of the recordings that I have from those days, the rough mixes and so on, are only on cassette because it would okay. be at the end of the end of the session, I would say to the engineer, "Can you run me off a rough mix of that and and do me an instrumental at the same time?" And it would go on a, on a you know TDK C sixty, and I still have those, but it's, it doesn't exist on a reel yeah. or that or right. a, or or a, or a, a WAV or anything like that. So I I have equipment here. You can. I don't know if you can see it, but oh that, yeah, this bank of things has got a a, a very high tech cassette deck, and it's got yeah. a CDR, so I can run, I can transfer from cassette to CDR, and yeah. then the CDR goes into a, a, a drive that's connected to my computer, and then hey presto, I've got it on on my favorite uh, work system. Got it. And I can press it. Uh, I can't remix it as such because I can't separate the individual tracks, but I can compress it and EQ it and edit yeah. and quite a lot to it. Do you have, I'm imagining now you telling this story, Mike Scott has like a temperature controlled storage facility somewhere that's got boxes and one says, this is the sea and one says road to ruin and one says dream harder or whatever. And each one is just full of these tapes from all of the sessions. Do you collect like that? Uh, I don't collect as in, like, I collect books about Dennis Hopper. It's not quite like that. <laughs> but but, but I've, still, I've still got lots of them. I'll show you. Hang on. But about, uh, about 25 years ago, my second wife bought me uh, a number of boxes that fit cassettes like, like oh. this. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And this one is S for Studio. And you okay. can see 81 to 84. So it just predates This Is The Sea. And if I open it up and, and hold it up for you, and you can see what, what the inside looks like. There it is. And that, yeah. th- that documents your history from that time period of studio recordings. Yes. And I've got another one for live, and I've got another one for rehearsals and informal. So it, it was just a, a, point, a point about okay. 20, 25 years ago where I got organized about it all. Perfect. I wondered about that because some of the, the what's included on the box set, as I understand it, are things like home recordings, early demos, alternative versions, outtakes, mm-hmm. live versions, and versions that were recorded on television shows 
right? Yeah, and radio, yes. yes. Yes, and radio, yes. So yeah. all of that had to have been stored somewhere, and it sounds like you've got a whole system for hanging on to a lot of that stuff. Yeah, and 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 there's also a, a, a huge archive that, that uh, EMI Records has um, curated for us for a long time, which is, is all nice. the water studio reels. Yeah, okay. That really is kept in a temperature-controlled place, along with got lots it. of other artists' work. So I have to ask, you mentioned Fisherman's Blues. Do you anticipate doing one of these for that album at some point too? Already done it. Already done it 10 really? years ago. Really? So that's in the pipeline already? No, no, no. It came out. Oh, it did? Did I Fisherman's, miss that? It's called Fisherman's Box. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes. Oh my yeah. gosh. Dumb. Yes. I remember that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Excellent. Now, one of the things... I wanted to ask about whenever I do a lot of research on this album in particular, and you guys, especially around this time period, that big music tag is everywhere. And yeah. I wondered if that, that tag, I mean, you, you just had a song called big music, but the tag the, got the put on. Music. Yes. <clears throat> but the tag got put on simple minds and the alarm and the call and you two and all those kinds of bands. Yeah. Were you intending that tag to be a, thematic of your music in general or as a whole or was it just one song and people ran with it it's a song and it's not even a song about music it's a metaphor i have heard the big music it's a song about having a spiritual experience or yeah. or a transcendent experience that changes the 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 recipient i've heard the big music and i'll never be the same so uh, uh, but you see when the war boys came out the, the album that that was on which was a pagan place uh, had this very sort of cinematic sounding music. It, it was a widescreen music. And so journalists called it the big music yeah. and, and, and then applied it to other bands as well. But to me, it's always been a, a metaphor, a shorthand for a, a, a kind of transcendental personal experience. I love that. I got it. <clears throat> it, it just, it's, it's, it feels like your song was the flashpoint for a trend musically mm. for certain bands like yeah. the ones i mentioned that would sort of begin to flourish for the next i don't know eight or nine years maybe yeah yeah do you um when you look back at this period of your personal <laughs> musical growth do you see some who do you see at this time do you see a guy who's hungry who's trying to find some things new things do you see a guy that has figured some things out because the, the, you have to admit, these, like you said, these two albums are strokes of genius among a, an entire career of genius. Yeah. What's that? I didn't say that. No, I, just I will it. say that for you, but they are okay, kind of benchmarks for Waterboys, yes. <laughs> well, I, I listen to the music on This Is The Sea and I can, I can hear myself evolving very fast and discovering uh, how to how to make my musical imagination into a, a a reality on record that was the big the big progression at that time on the pagan place and this is the sea albums i would have all these musical ideas and finally i'd worked out how to develop them and capture them and represent yeah. them on a record yeah. and i had studio skills or i was at least approaching the place where I had enough studio skills to to manage it. 
okay. still needed help from people like Mick Glossop who, and John Brand, who co-produced a lot of the sessions in this album. But by the end of making This Is A Sea, I was able to produce, for example, The Whole of the Moon and Don't Buy the Drum on my own. Oh, so that, really? That okay. was the cutting edge for me at that point. I'd, I'd learned enough to make those records on my own. As you you lived so heavily in this album for the last little while, do you are yeah. you able to uh, judge it objectively, or when when you listen, do you hear? Th oh, I wish I had done this differently, or I wish I had said this, or changed this, or whatever. Uh, well, I, I believe that I was able to listen to it objectively at the time. That's part of the production job. Sure. And perhaps the most difficult thing for an artist producer is to separate the artist from the producer. Yeah. Uh, and. Fortunately, I, I I worked with a guy at, at Enzyme Records. He was he was my my record company boss, and he was very much the the boss. He was the man who was always right. He was called Nigel Grange, but he was also a great friend. He used to drive me mad by by judging my songs, and every song was either genius or shit, and there was no there was no in between for Nigel. And, and, you know, it was very, very frustrating and sometimes painful at the time because I would bring in some some new song I'd worked on, like Red Army Blues or or or, or Old England, and, and, and he, would, he would absolutely dismiss the song. And yet the, the abruptness and, and sometimes brutality of his opinions alerted me to, to being able to look at my music from another perspective. Not that his perspective was right. I, I, I soon soon realized that, that he was a bit of a fundamentalist and I didn't need to take him seriously. But the fact of him having these very rude opinions encouraged me, almost in a self-protective way, to learn to look at my music dispassionately so yeah. that I could say, well, actually, actually, it's not just my opinion. I think this song deserves to be on the record because of this and that, because it, it it's it, A, it sounds good, B, it's got a great melody and so on. And I developed the, the ability to be at least as objective as I could. And that's something that served me, serves me well even today. Sure. Okay, so I'm glad you mentioned this because I had some questions. Before we get into going track by track, I wanted to ask you about some of the songs that aren't on the album. Hmm. As I've had the two-disc deluxe version or whatever for several years, and there's yeah. songs like Beverly Penn, Sleek White Schooner. Were um, those songs, were they, did you have hopes of them being on the album and then someone like Nigel say they don't belong there? Or did you make those decisions? Why aren't they there? I'm glad to report to you, John, that every decision about this is the sea was made by me. Okay. I hired a big hired a big time American manager called Gary Kerfurst, and his brief was keep Nigel out of the way while I make this record. <laughs> and he did that for me. <laughs> so Nigel stayed out of the way. Those songs, Beverly Penn and Sleek White Schooner, were left off the album for two different reasons. Sleek White Schooner just didn't come up to crucial. And it was too derivative as well. It was too influenced by Echo and the Bunnymen. Now, if you were going to be influenced by a band in 1984-5, the Bunnymen were one of the best, and I was a big right. fan of theirs. But the song wasn't original enough. It, I could listen to it, and I think, I sound like Mac from, from Running Bunnymen, and I didn't want to trade on that. I want yeah. to sound like myself. Yeah. So that one got rejected. And the other track, Beverly Penn, was, was an absolute cert for the album until we recorded Don't Bang the Drum. And the, the reason that Don't Bang the Drum displaced it is that there are three songs that share the same rhythm. 
The rhythm is boom, cha, boom, cha, boom, cha, boom, boom, cha, and there, don't bang the drum, the pan within in Beverly Penn. And once Don't Bang the Drum came on the scene, it was one of the last songs to be recorded for the record, I couldn't, in good faith, countenance having three songs on one album with the same rhythm, and one of them had to go, and that was Beverly Penn. That makes sense. Okay. (laughs) That makes sense. I may ask about more stuff like that here in a minute. Um, Let me just, for the sake of the listeners, explain a little bit more about the box set. It's six CDs, but the sixth is the album remastered. Yes. The first CD is called Towers Open Fire. It's all the sort of music or recordings leading up to the album. Yes, CD it's two the was year before. Yes, the, the, the year, year before. before okay, and uh, my, I'm imagining you at home on a piano or something like that, just finding things, finding interesting ideas to explore. Is that sort of what the theme of that CD might be? There's a tiny bit of that, but, oh. but most of it, there are a number of live tracks, a number of radio session tracks where we were developing the ideas that would come to fruition on This Is The Sea. And there are five or six tracks from Carl Wallinger's home studio where oh, we used to try out ideas and I would record demos. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah. Then CD2 is Black Book Piano Demos. Again, going back to kind of what I was studio. saying. Yeah, the first two days of the album was spent recording piano demos. Yeah. Okay. Three and four are full band recording sessions. One is called Sky Full of Crows. The other is called The Ladder. And this is the band working out the songs in the studio? Exactly. Okay. And then CD5 is Mountaintop, Last Sessions and Afterwards. And I'm curious what afterwards means. Uh, It means the overspill of the album. So, so... It's a few recordings immediately afterwards, but while the mood of This Is The Sea was still prevalent, uh-huh. there were some radio session tracks from the that were promoting the album. So those are gathered together, and and there are some real nice oddities. There's a there's a track where where we're doing a a, a previously unheard Bob Dylan instrumental. Oh, interesting! And and the story behind that is that that. Um, this is the C came out and Bob was in London. He was recording with Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics and he'd heard the whole of the moon and he liked it. Uh, and he, he, he got in touch with us somehow and, and invited me to his, to his studio for an afternoon because <clears throat> he liked the song so much. So I went and played with Bob and three of us went and, and played with Bob for an afternoon in Dave Stewart's studio. And, Curiously enough, they, they weren't they weren't recording what you would imagine would be Bob's usual method of him singing down his song with an acoustic guitar and everybody tries to play along. Yeah. It wasn't like that. It was it was they were doing instrumentals that Bob and Dave, I think, had written, or maybe Bob had written them on his own, I don't know, with the idea that Bob would write the lyrics later. I suppose Bob was just trying out a different way of working. Uh-huh. And the way that that manifested in the in the studio session, the one that we were at anyway, was Bob, Dave, and a crack session band, including Clem Burke from Blondie, were, were playing down these instrumentals. And we just settled into the studio and someone found us a place and, and we played along too. Uh, and, and it was very good fun. And we were there for three or four hours. And then the next day, we were on the other side of London auditioning musicians. And I had, a, a, I had my little recording Walkman set up. Uh-huh. so that I could listen back to to the new potential players. Yeah. And during the day, looking for something interesting to play, 
because, you know, auditions were playing the same two or three songs over and over. But I wanted to do something different. I remembered one of the instrumentals that we'd played with Bob the day before. And Steve and Anto, my colleagues, they remembered it too. So we played that with a couple of the auditionees. Uh-huh. And, of course, I switched on the cassette machine and recorded it. And when I was compiling this this box set, I thought, God, I wonder what that Bob Dylan instrumental sounds like. So I went back and I found the cassette, transferred it, put it in my computer, and it sounded absolutely gorgeous. It was about 11 minutes long, so I edited it down to the best three minutes. Right. And it's it's on the box set. And, oh. and it's, never, it's never come out. You see, we, we had to go to Bob's management uh, now in the in the modern day yeah. and say, well, we... we played with Bob in 85 and and we recorded this version of one of his tunes. Can we have permission to release it? And they came back and said, oh, yeah, Bob remembers that. Uh, it's called and gave me the title, which is Meridian West. <laughs> uh, and I, I have a theory about it. I think it might be where Jimmy Rogers was born. Oh, maybe. Jimmy Rogers was born in a town called Meridian. So it may be something uh. to do with Jimmy Rogers. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, I'd have to have Bob in the room and ask him. Sure, uh, sure. That's not going to happen today. Send him an email. Let me know what he says. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing was that his manager sent us a recording from the day that we played in the studio with Bob of us all playing the song together, playing the tune together. Yeah, it was very wow. nice. That's incredible. That alone is worth the price of admission for the box set. <laughs> Speaking of which, I saw you on Twitter, and we might, I might, I was going to wait to do this later, but I'll do it in, now instead. I saw you on Twitter or X or whatever it's called saying that one of the things that you're most excited about in the box set is like a 17 minute version of this is the sea. Yeah. Tell me about that. I, it, that struck my yeah. curiosity. This was in the studio. Um, it's on the, the third CD of the box set. And I had written about 20 verses for This Is The Sea, and, and I still hadn't made my final decisions about which ones were going to be in a song. And so I, I set up a, a microphone, a, a couple of microphones, and I, and I sat on the floor of the studio playing my 12-string guitar, singing from from my, my lyric sheet all the different verses to see how they felt. Yeah. And Carl Wallinger had this new drum machine. It was called a Yamaha RX-11. And it was the first drum machine that we'd ever seen where instead of programming a looped or repetitive rhythm, you could actually play pads and they would give you the drum sound. So you could go, and you could hit another pad and you'd get a cymbal on another pad, you get a hand clap or a cowbell. You could program the sounds and then play them. And Carl was immediately adept at making cool, funky rhythms. What what now, the kind of rhythms that we're now very, very familiar with in popular music, where they're 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 they have slightly capricious timing and they're uh-huh. kind of lumpy but funky because of it. Uh-huh. And he was the first person I ever heard do those kind of rhythms. And so this version of this is the sea is 17 minutes of him and me Ooh. grooving with the drum machine and the guitar as I sing the verses. Oh man. And it's all on there? It is, yeah. Okay, let me see. I want to read this quote that I read from a Rolling Stone review of the album by Park Pewterbaugh. Mike Scott is more of a poet than a songwriter, yet within his limitations, he weaves trances so spellbinding that he has few peers among his musical contemporaries. Now, yeah, from what I know about you and the music you've put out that I've paid attention to most of my life, 
poetry is a big part of your process, I guess. It's an interest of yours. You care about it. Would you agree with that? I mean, do these songs, how do you, how do you differentiate between lyrics and poetry? Or is the line really blurry? Well, I write lyrics. I don't write poetry. Really? I always imagine you probably did. Very occasionally. And and round about the time that this is the sea, I did fancy myself as a bit of a poet. And I did write some poetry, which is included in, in the book that comes uh, out with uh-huh. this set. But, but I don't consider myself really a, a, a good poet. Uh, I think I'm a much better song lyricist than a poet. Fixing, fixing words to music is my job. I could see that. I But I just... Given, I mean, you put out the Yates album and stuff like that. I've just imagined you having a separate book, a little worn leather, black leather bound book with your poetry scribbles in it. That that okay, probably, yeah. maybe it, no one reads it but you, but it means a lot to you. You don't have that? Oh, I would imagine Mike Scott having that. Okay, let's go track by track. You can tell whatever okay. stories you want. I mean, I don't want you to blow the entire wad of the box, but it's fun yeah. to go through this stuff. Don't Bang the Drum is probably my favorite song in the album, and it's one of the greatest track ones in history. Um, my feeling about this song, and it, this is a theme, as I understand it, about a lot of the songs on the record, is that it feels layered. It feels like how many more things can we put on this song and still make it powerful without overindulging? You know what I mean? And you hit yeah. the perfect, perfect barrier of power that's how i feel okay well do you know it's 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 a a few instruments sounding like a lot is it really okay yeah you see the the the, the guitar you got a guitar here the rhythm guitar on the on don't bang the drum is played like 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 this yeah you see it's a sort of everything rhythm yeah it's, it's, i'm not playing you know yeah. sort of, i'm playing full rhythm like it's all doubled up and i'm doing yeah. the same on a piano and when you have a guitar and a piano doing that it sounds huge it's a wall of sound yeah and there's probably one other guitar one other electric guitar playing stuff on top of that and okay. there's carl's synthesizer bass and and apart from extra touches like the saxophone that's it wow. it just sounds big it sure does and, and the intro the trumpet intro the influence on that was Sketches of Spain by Miles Davis. I wondered. That's such a great album. Yeah, I wondered. I, I, yeah, I had the idea of a, a, a dark, brooding, uh, landscape-like backdrop and then a bright, transcendent trumpet on the top. Yeah. And, and the guy who played the trumpet was Roddy Lorimer, and he doesn't play it at all like Miles. It's just, it's just an influence, but he doesn't play yeah. it like he plays it like himself. Uh, I, I think if he played it too much like Miles, I wouldn't have used it. <laughs> right. he, he made it original. It was all right. He did. Yeah. yeah, he did. Um, from what you were saying earlier in our conversation, it sounds as if this was one of the last songs recorded, if not the last. Yeah. It, in fact, it was the last, yes. Really? When you record a song like this, as you're hearing it, you're putting it together, are you thinking this is a perfect track one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I knew with that intro that it was so audacious yes. to start an album with, with one and a half minutes of, of yeah. a, a strange trumpet instrumental and then come with the music after that. I thought, I've got to do this. And, and it was the right move. Yeah. 
We should talk about Carl Wallinger for a minute. He was in the band at the time. It's funny, I emailed with him the other day because someone else I've had on the show put me in contact. And um, he said, you know, I'd love to come on your podcast, but I'm working on uh, the album that's taken me 23 years to write. So maybe we could do this when, when it's finished and ready. And I thought, well, then we're not going to talk again for 23 more years. I mean, who knows when that's going to happen, Carl? Come on. But anyway. Um, he's got a co-write on this and you speak very fondly about his abilities in orchestration. I believe just like you were saying a minute ago with the Yamaha, he seems to be sort of a gadget guy. Who's all the new stuff he's taking it on and he's getting really good at it really quickly. And that's helping to enhance the sound. Is that right? Well, he, he was very good with his synthesizer, particularly. Uh synthesizer and drum machine he's brilliant at recording too we used to do as i mentioned these home demos that we used to do in carl's studio and i call them home demos but he, he had a very sophisticated little setup uh, you know it was a, it was a, a it was a home studio but his skills his recording skills weren't home studio skills they were proper top professional world-class recording person skills uh, and and we used to do wonderful demos and recordings late at night at his studio uh, uh, without a clock ticking, without the record company even knowing we were working, without having to filter everything through an engineer who we might only have met that day, who might not like or get our music or who might be looking at his watch. But none of that, it just us. And, and we had such great times doing it. And so his contribution to the album is very large. And and one of, one of my favorites of the things that he did was his synth bass. It's the only thing he plays on Don't Bang the Drum is his synth really? bass. Oh, wow. And if you listen to the record, the bass playing is so beautifully yes. different. And he doesn't do anything fancy, and he leaves lots of spaces, and the spaces are as important as the notes. Uh -huh. And I particularly loved his synth bass. And, and what I loved about it was that nobody else, apart from the playing of it, I loved that nobody else did it. I love that. And he used, to get, he used to get such a stubby funky sound i love that okay now i love hearing th things like this because now i'm going to go back and listen to the album again and i'm going to think about this i'm going to focus on the bass um i read somewhere that the this song is about environmentalism i no. okay well that's okay that's why i asked so what what do you consider it about it's it's about um it's addressed to someone who misses the point and carries on regardless, having missed the signals and read a room wrongly. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's also saying, I know how this feels because sometimes I do it too. Uh-huh. And then there's I a deep aspect to it that comes in at the third verse where the, the narrator or the subject's father is invoked. Okay. It takes it into a deeper place. I love it. This this line between reality and spirituality in a lot of your songs, I have always loved that. And it's gonna come up a few more times. Okay, so let's talk about Hole of the Moon. That's the that's the immortal classic that lives on to this day. Now, again, so far some things I've said have been right and some things I learned have been wrong. Yeah. This one does feel like layering. My understanding or not feel, I'm sorry. I read, I believe, that this was layering. It starts with you on a piano. And then Carl comes in with like the the sort of those synth lines, and then we'll put some saxophone on it, and then we'll put some drums on it, little by little, building the song piece by piece. Is that right? 
Yes, and you know, Don't Bang the Drum didn't have many instruments on it, but it also was layering. I'll talk you through the process. You see, Don't Bang the Drum started in the studio where I've got a drum machine playing that boom, chop, chop rhythm. I've checked the tempo, I've got the tempo I want. And then the first thing I play is the piano, which is and then the guitar in the same rhythm goes on top. And by the time I've got the guitar and the piano and the drum machine, it already sounds like a band. And then a vocal goes on. And then Carl comes in and plays his bass, we've got the bottom end. And then the top line instruments go on. And it's just like filling in the, the colors of yes. the picture. Pull of the Moon began also with a, a drum beat, the boom, bat, boom, bat. And I played piano and sang at the same time, as you hear it on the record, in the studio with the, the drum beat in my headphones. And the next thing to go on was the trumpet solo, mm. oddly enough. And in fact, even before the trumpet solo, I had a fiddler come in, not Steve Wickham, because I didn't know him at that point, but a different fiddler who played with the Waterboys a couple of times before, came in and recorded something very tasty for that little instrumental bit in the middle. But it wasn't pop enough. It was too too rustic. It was too, yeah. it was too countryside. It needed to be a pop, a blast of pop. And, and my idea was I wanted something that would do for Hole of the Moon what the, the piccolo trumpet does in Penny Lane. Nice. Sudden shaft of sunshine. Yes. And so Roddy came in on the, the next day after we tried to fiddle and that was rejected. Roddy came in the next day and, and he played his trumpet parts. And then I think uh, Carl was probably the next person in. And in one session we did synth bass and then the, the carnival sounding funky offbeat. And then little synth melody touches that occur here and there through the song. And then after that would be backing vocals, percussion, and then saxophone at the end. Incredible. And you're just, let's try this. Let's put this on the song. This works. This doesn't. Let's take it back out. There's a squiggly guitar thing going on near the beginning, too, that doesn't yeah, play out for the rest either. of But yeah, it, it, it's not in the rest of the song. It's just in the beginning. This uh, Anyway, where'd that come from? Well, it's very interesting. I, I've, the, uh, uh, we've asked a top American producer to do a remix of Hole of the Moon, uh, and he's doing it, but, but I won't say who it is because just in case I don't like it or, 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 or he gives up or something, it doesn't happen. Right. But because, of, because of this, I had the multi-track on my computer, and it was fascinating listening to the multi-track and the guitar in one take, I must have worked it all out and then played it through in one take. There's that squiggly, that's uh -huh. skittery sound. It's at the start and the end of the track, almost yeah. like to my ear, to my musical imagination, it's like a, a takeoff and then at the end of the track, oh, I touched good it. Good point. Okay. But the same guitar, the same player, it was me, in the same take, also played all the way through the song. And there are crunch guitar chords quite low in the mix at judicious points throughout the song. And if you have a listen, especially on the headphones, okay. you'll, you'll hear them. And then I also played um, some single note repeats in a sort of systems music style, and that didn't work. And so that was that was muted. Yeah. Oh man, I love stuff like this. Now, my understanding is that you wrote this song on a dare, a girlfriend dared you at some point in New York, I believe, to how easy is it to write a song and you scribbled it down on a napkin? Well, I'd like right. to say that I scribbled the whole song there and then, but I didn't. I just scribbled the title, uh, or the uh, I saw the crescent, you saw the whole of the moon. And I, I think maybe the same night I maybe wrote another verse. 
but the lyrics were written over a period of about two months. Okay. And then I was in the studio at the beginning of the album sessions on the two days when I recorded piano demos. And and I had a song in my mind that I'd written some years before that that had a, a, a distinctive piano rhythm, which went dong, gong, 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 gong. Uh-huh. My left hand played boom, 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 boom. And my right hand played a, a constant staggered gong, 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 gong. And when you put them together, you got very distinctive, loping, yeah. funky rhythm. Right. And so I tried this old song of mine from many years previously. It didn't work out. It hadn't worked out in 1979 or 80 when I'd first written it, and it still didn't work out. But it put the rhythm in my mind again. And so a couple of hours later, when I was going through my, my songbook, my book of songs, and I found the, the, the burgeoning lyric for the whole of the moon, it wasn't then complete, it was just a couple of verses, I tried singing it against this piano rhythm, this old piano rhythm of mine, and it worked. Mm. And on the box set, you can hear me trying it out. You can hear me playing the rhythm. And first I try a different lyric and then I try the whole of the moon lyric. And at first it doesn't quite fit. And it's, you can feel, a, I can hear my, my piano playing and the lyrics sort of pushing against each other. And then there's this marvelous moment, but, but five minutes in when suddenly they lock and the song is there. And you can hear it in real time on the box. Oh set. man. Oh man. I'm getting goosebumps just imagining that. Um, okay. Was it now? I've heard a few things. It was written about Nikki Sudden. I don't know if no, that's right. Absolutely, absolutely not. Nikki Sudden was a friend of mine, but absolutely not okay. the subject of the whole of the moon. He does appear in another more obscure Waterboys song called "The Late Train to Heaven." Okay, verse two about Augustus. That's Nikki Sudden, but not the whole of the moon. He's not a whole of the moon character at all. It's, okay, it's about it's about a kind of archetypal character, like like a Jimi Hendrix who suddenly appears like a, a supernova and burn burns out or dies very quickly, yes. having, having stunned us all. Yeah, it's more okay. that kind of character. That makes sense. I also read that C.S. Lewis and or Prince and or Winter's Tale factor into the influences. C.S. Lewis was the kind of person that I could say, man, you you thought the whole thing out. You saw yeah. the whole picture, although the song's not about him. Prince as well, suddenly arriving fully formed in our consciousness with 1999 and Purple Rain. I'm afraid I hadn't been paying attention to dirty work and controversy yeah. before that. Right. But suddenly there he was, this full-blown rock avatar. So it, it, it could have been about a character like him, although, again, it's not like him. Yeah. It's not okay. about him. And Winter's Tale was was a a great novel by by Mark Helpern, an American writer. And I read that just at the beginning of making This is the Sea. And it had a huge influence on me. The song isn't about him at all, but 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 he he there was a kind of abundance in his writing. He would be writing about a He's writing about a newspaper in New York, in this fictional New York of his imagination. And he writes about all the things that go on in the newspaper building. And he takes about a whole page to write about all all the activities that might be going on at any one moment. And I I, I so love the way that he he captured that sense of abundance Mm. and activity in prose. And that had an influence on my songwriting. So that in The Hole of the Moon, the way that influence works out is that uh, towards the end of the song, there's that list of the things that the hero of the song has seen. Unicorns and cannonballs, palaces, beers, trumpets, mm. and wide oceans full of tears. That's the helper and influence. Got it. The list Got of it. all the things. 
Got it. Okay. Last question, and I think we may have talked about this before, but we'll do it again. The that you mentioned supernova, that blast off sound near the end. Uh, it for me has comet. always been the comet. That's it. Yes. Uh, yeah, that has been a. I get emotional every time I hear it. It has never ceased to hit me. And in fact, I can't, I've never listened to the song passively. Whenever that comet part happens, if I'm driving and I've got my kids in the car, I go, whoosh. Like I make a hand motion or something every time because it, you cannot sit still. Who's, was that your idea? Was that tacked on at the end? What's the story of the comet sound? Well, because the line you came like a comet, yeah. and I've always liked sound effects, and I thought, well, why don't we have a comet? You perfect. came like a comet. Yes. And you see that offbeat just after I sing comet is the perfect place for it. Yes. And then the magical thing was, I, I can't remember where, whether we'd already recorded the sax or whether we were about to record a sax, but the way that the sax seems to fly out of the tail yes. of the comet is yes. magical, magical coincidence. Perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And the fact that it comes at the end of the song, if you had said Comet at the beginning of the song, it wouldn't have felt earned. And even, you know, that sound effect, as it is, it's like a giant punctuation on the ex on yeah. the emotional experience you've just sat through of this, you know, yeah. I'm getting goosebumps yeah. again just thinking about it. Anyway. And you know, John, that, that list of things, the unicorns, cannonballs section, I remember writing that. I remember thinking, this song's working out real good. I'm really happy with it. But I want to take it further. I want to take it to a new level. What would I do? And then it struck me, have a list of all the things that the, the hero or heroine of the lyric has seen. So I wrote that, the Unicorns Cannonballs bit. I'm playing at the piano, singing it and thinking, that's really great. It ups the whole emotional yes. intensity yes, on does. a new level. So for the last chorus, I've got to change the lyrics. I can't just sing, you were there in the turnstiles with the wind at your heels. Yeah. I can't sing that again. I've got to sing someone different. And, and so it's, you came like a comet, you see, it's, yes. it's taken yes. up there. Oh, yeah. again, I, I, I might cry. It, it hits me every time. Mike always has. Okay, the next track is Spirit. This is one I actually have a lot of questions about because it's under two minutes. It feels yeah. almost like an interstitial or something in a way. <laughs> On the deluxe version that I've had for a long time, there's a much longer drawn out version of it. So I'm curious if it it's, feels like a jam. It feels like tinkering with something. I don't know if it's the whole band or just you. And then somewhere along the line, you or somebody decided, you know what, all we need from this five minute piece of music is this one minute and 46 second snippet right yeah. here. You know yeah. what I mean? Okay, well, the lyric, the, the real lyric of the song is the two verses that you hear on the record, on the finished record. When, when it was recorded, it, it did come out of an improvisation in the studio. There were three of us playing. It was myself on piano, Carl was on a synth, and Anthony was playing double bass, upright bass, our, our sax player who also played bass. And we were, we were playing the song and I kept singing after the lyric finished and I was making up the words as I went along. And there's a line actually that was a, a rip from a Bob Dylan sleeve note on the heels of Rambo from the sleeve notes of Bob Dylan's Desire album. And that, that kicked me into, into a little improv of my own. But, but when I came to compile the record, I, I didn't think that the improv lyrics were as good as the, the actual constructed verses. Okay. So I just used the, the short, okay. the, the 146 or whatever Interesting. it is. Interesting. Yeah. Um, 
Now, I've got, I'm not a musician at all, and I don't even know what the proper words are for this, but it it's interesting. And this feels a little bit like a theme that comes up a couple of times in the, in the album. You know, man is this, spirit is this, column A, column B. And it like feels like, the as well. that's what I was just going to say. Yep, that's what I was just going to say, and I think it might come up in another song or two here too. And are you conscious of that? Is that a ta is that a writing tactic? Is that just where your head was at? I don't know what that even means or why. What? Why did you sing those things right then? Why was that how your head was that's working a as a column? That's a lovely question. Why did you sing those things? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to. I, don't, I can't find the words because I don't. I'm not a musician. I don't know what that's called. Well, you know, I, I, I suppose it's comparison, lyric by comparison. Uh, but I wasn't aware that, well, I probably was aware that it happened in both those songs, or at least not while I was writing each individual song, but probably at some stage in making the record, I thought, oh, I did that in Hole of the Moon as well. Oh, yeah. And it's it's there's a, an echo of it in This is the Sea, where you know you did all this, that was the river, but this is the sea. Exactly. It's like it in the Hole of the Moon. And I suppose it was where my head was at, as you correctly articulated that's okay. what it was it wasn't a, a writing technique that i was conscious of or okay. or deliberately deploying it's just where i was at and you know in my own life at the time i i was at a point very much a this is the sea kind of point i'd been been working steadily on my music since I'd been a teenager. And suddenly I, I was able to realize my dreams musically. And suddenly I was on the cusp of taking it to the world. And so it really felt as if I was standing at the gateway of, of a whole set yeah. of new experiences. Yeah. So partly I'm working out my own experience in the, in the songs. That makes sense. Now, one other thing um, that I had read getting ready to, is that three huge influences on this album in particular, maybe on your whole thing, is The Velvet Underground, Van Morrison, and Steve Reich. Mm -hmm. And I definitely hear Steve Reich. I always say Reich. Is it Reich or Reich? Reich. Okay, Reich. Reich. That's what I said. I definitely hear Steve Reich on this song. Mm -hmm. Those kind of... Oh, yes, definitely. Monotonous, monotonous is the wrong word, but... The hypnotic, you know, repetitive. Hypnotic, that's it. Yes, yeah. the repetitive piano, you know, yes. Yeah. Yes, huge influence. And I'll tell you a funny thing about Steve Reich, about his music, was that uh, I discovered him by accident in, in 1982. I was in a New York record shop and I, I picked up an album by him. Uh, I had mistaken, I'd got his name confused with someone whose record I was looking for. And I bought a Steve Reich one by accident. Uh -huh. And I took it home and, and, and it was like, very very strange music it was all these weird interconnecting rhythms yeah. and and they were singing in, in a funny language i didn't recognize it was the hebrew mm -hmm. uh, and strange instrumentation and and of course it was it was my first proper experience of minimalism yeah but there was something familiar about it and, yeah. and i thought in my innocence i thought maybe it's a sort of archetypal human music and my soul is responding to it or something mm -hmm. like that yeah. And then some months later, uh, I was listening to a David Bowie record. I was listening to Low, mm -hmm. that wonderful and very strange album he made. And I was listening to side two of Low, which is all the four instrumentals. And on the third instrumental, I think it's called Weeping Wall, suddenly it, it was exactly the same as Steve Reich's music. And I realized that Steve Reich's music was reminding me of this David Bowie track. 
So I checked it out and I realized that David Bowie was copying Steve Reich. The original had reminded me of the copy. Because <laughs> Bowie was a huge fan of Steve Reich about five or six years before I discovered him. Yeah. And he and Eno had been to see him play live and they deliberately um, done a Steve Reich yes. track yes. on low. But of course the reviewers weren't hip enough to Steve Reich to realize right. that David was up to what we was doing. Steve's a genius, <laughs> or Dave's a genius. Where'd he come up yeah. with this? Turns out he ripped it straight from Steve Reich. Yeah. yeah, I love Steve Reich. I have a Steve Reich uh, box set upstairs, and you you put that on, and I call it a biorhythm. It just yeah. your internal clock latches on to the music, and they just flow together, you know, in harmony for two hours or whatever it is. I love it. Yeah. Okay. Then there's the pan within. Now I, I, I've got to ask what your thing with pans are. Let me read something about a pan pan, the Greek God. If you've seen them before, they they're, they've got like goats legs or whatever. And, um, let me read what I read with his homeland in rustic Arcadia. He is also recognized as the God of fields, groves, wooded glens, and often affiliated with sex. Because of this, Pan is connected to fertility and the season of spring. And I wonder if when you're talking about things like the Pan Within, because you have a couple of songs with Pan in them, if you're, this is code for you singing about sex. Oh, no, it's not particularly. Sex is one aspect of, of the God Pan, but not the primary aspect that I've been interested in in my own musings about Pan. Okay. And, and, um, when I was a child, I read the book The Wind and the Willows by Kenneth Graham, well, a very great English children's book. And there's a beautiful chapter called The Piper at the Gates of Dawn about an encounter with Pan. Uh, and that inspired me as a child. And, and for me, Pan is a, a figure of uh, a symbol of wild places and freedom and indeed of the, the animal side of humanity. Humanity's connection with nature, which of course sex is a, a small part of that. Sure. Uh, but it's a much deeper connection than just sexual. Uh, now, the, the, the early Christian church feared that side of human existence, and so they, they characterized it as a devil and, and pretended that it was something evil. Uh, I, I'm not saying there isn't a uh, there isn't a, a, a bedrock of evil somewhere in the universe, but I don't think it's Pan. I, I could see that, absolutely. Um, so what is it about that character that has driven you to write more than one song about it? Uh, I think, what do you relate personal. to? Yeah, I, I, the, the sense of freedom and wildness. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. kind of sprung from that pod. I see, Pan, Pan's my chief. Yeah, I could see that. You're spirit animal. Right. Yeah, 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 I get it. Okay. Um, the first line of the song, come with me on a journey beneath the skin. And um, uh, I think I read somewhere that that might have been influenced by some meditations that you were doing at the time, but I don't know. Do you remember? I, I didn't meditate in those days. Mm. I, I did learn meditation some years after that, but it's more, it's more a journey into the, into the world of the imagination. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. The shared imagination with a lover. Got it. Okay. Now, I believe it's Steve Wickham's violin that's on this song. 
correct? It is indeed. It's his first recording with the Water Boys. Okay. It is so intense, and it, it brings the heft, another layer of heft to this song. It's kind of the special magical ingredient. Yeah. yeah. Why would you now? And we've talked about building the songs layer upon layer. Was that violin added near the end? Did you feel like it needed something extra, or was it always intended? It was probably the last overdub for the whole album. He came right at the end, but the song was one of the first that was recorded. Hmm. It was it was recorded in March '85, um, and I remember I had I had. I had lost my voice, so a couple of the musicians had gone back to London while Carl, myself, and our co-producer, John Brand, worked on ideas. And and we had a, a TR-606, a very primitive little drum machine. And I had my favorite rhythm, that boom cha boom boo cha rhythm. And I recorded the pan within myself uh, with that drum machine. Play, and I played uh, two acoustic guitars, two electric guitars, and three pianos. Oh. in one take, one after another. And I used, just used to like recording fast like that because if I, if I, if I, I could have done it slow and gone, oh, well, that, maybe that beats slightly ahead. Maybe I could do that a little bit more, you know, a bit more finesse. But, but if I did that, it was boring. What, what, what really excited me was to play the song once on acoustic guitar and then immediately play a brother acoustic guitar in the other speaker. When I was still aware of every nuance of the first guitar mm. and I could second guitar either duplicate it or play against it or 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 play comments on it and so on. So I did two acoustic guitars super fast and two electric guitars super fast and then three pianos super fast. So seven overdubs in oh I don't know 42 minutes because it's yeah. only six minutes long. And then Carl played his synth bass, the beautiful synth yeah. bass. And that for a long time, that was the whole song, oh. and and that I, I must at some point I did a vocal uh, when my voice came back, uh, and but it didn't have a lead instrument apart from a couple of bits where the guitar plays a big riff, but there was no lead instrument. The pianos played melodies, but but they were more atmospheric melodies. They weren't lead instrument. They weren't solos. Yeah. And I had the feeling that something hasn't happened yet on this song that needs to happen. And and I, I had always been a big fan of Dylan's Rolling Thunder period mm -hmm. with Scarlett Rivera on fiddle. Uh, she can be heard, of course, on the Desire album and the, the, the Rolling Thunder box set that came out. And, and I loved that gypsified sound that she brought to Dylan. And I had the idea for a while that may, maybe there was a violinist in my future, mm. in the Waterboy's future. Mm. And I'd tried out several. I'd tried out the guy who'd come and played the little bit on the Hole of the Moon. He was an English film. His name was Tim Blanthorne. But his style was too too pastoral, too peaceful. Oh, interesting. And then I tried out a guy that I saw busking in London. His name was Frank Biddulph. And he came and he played he played a, a, a one one-off gig with us. But he was too, he, he was a spirited player. And he played like John Cale in the Velvet Underground. So mm. rivulets of noise. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. It wasn't the sound I was looking for. And then I had a session player come in. Come in. His name was Marek Lipsky. He was Polish. He was a friend of Roddy the trumpeter, and he came in to play the dun 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 dun, dun parts on "This Is the Sea." Uh -huh. And he was a beautiful player, and he did a wonderful job on "This Is the Sea." But again, he wasn't the sound I was looking for. 
And then around about this time, Nigel Grange, who we were talking about earlier, the yeah. boss at the he was interested in signing a girl singer called Sinead O'Connor. And yeah. she was from Dublin. And he brought her over from Dublin and he got Carl to produce a demo of two songs. And because Carl had this home studio uh, and and they, they recorded a demo of two songs. And, and Carl phoned me up and he said, you should hear this girl singer. She's really good. So I went over to his, his place and I listened to the girl singer. And she was indeed very good. But what really attracted my ear was the fiddle player behind her. The fiddle player, man. I mean, she was brilliant. No, no yes. doubt about that. But the fiddle player, it was the sound I was looking for. Yes. It was like, it was like a key to the universe when I heard yes. him. Yes, yes. So I tracked him down, found him. He didn't have a phone. It was, it was hard in those days. No emails, no mobile phones. Sure. I had to leave a message for him somewhere in a pub or something until he, till he, till he turned up. <laughs> But anyway, he got in touch with me in time and, and we flew him over from Dublin and he came to my flat and we spent an afternoon together and I played him the song and went into the studio and he was the missing part. There, wow. there it was. Wow. Did he linger around? I mean, I don't know enough about Steve Wickham. Did he, have you used him again? Did he tour with you or was he just sort of that moment? No, no, he was a member of the Waterboys for a long time. Was he? I thought he was, but I wasn't sure. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Anytime, anytime you see pictures of us with a fiddler, it's always him. Is it really? Okay. Wow. What a chance. I mean, fate stepped in right then. That is great. Yeah, definitely. definitely. One thing I want to ask you, I want to just mention is that in the past, and this is a theme, I love the way you yelp. I don't know what else to call it, but when you do those, woo, you know, those, <laughs> no one yelps quite like you. And it's, it's its own layer of depth to the to a song there are yeah, it's, an, it's like an instrument on a facility isn't it it is i yeah. um i think of it in terms of like ian asbury of the cult does that where his voice he makes these sort of sounds that they don't even mean anything but they add they're like another yeah. uh instrument your yelps do that to every song that you yeah. do it on i love it um okay we're we're switching over to side two we're on medicine bow my understand is that, understanding is that you did not know there was a town in Wyoming, which I drive through all the time because I'm from wow. Salt Lake City and I live in Denver. Uh, you didn't know about Medicine Bow, Wyoming when you named this song. No, I didn't. I thought I'd made up the name. Really? <laughs> yeah, because I'd absolutely be on thrilled to find there was a real Medicine Bow. <laughs> what does that even <laughs> like, mean? What is the two words, Medicine and Bow? How did you even think to put them together? Well, you see, in in Native American culture, there's medicine this and there's medicine that. Yeah. And there's yeah. a medicine bag and there's a medicine pipe. And yeah. I knew there was a medicine hat in Alberta. Yes, that's up so, in Canada. And of course, yeah. Indians have got arrows and bows, so medicine bowl seems, seems like a good bet. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, there's a longer version of this song that includes more piano from Adrian Johnston. Is that right? Because that's right. the version that's on the deluxe that I've had for a long time. Um, again, going back to kind of with spirit, when do you, what was the decision in cutting off Adrian's piano part? No offense to Adrian. There were enough epics on the record and what I needed at that point of the album, track one, side two, was a short burst of rock and roll. And that I felt sense. that, that it, was, it was worth cutting it. We, we used to play the, lo the long version live and, and the live version, or at least the radio session version is on the box set. And there's also a very interesting track in the box set called Adrian and the Piano Storm. 
which is a, 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 an eight or nine minute chunk from the session where Adrian came in and played the piano instrumental and, and his, his brief was to conjure or represent a storm using a piano. And so he uses like, but the, the, he's got his hand inside the piano and he's rubbing the strings like boom for the first stirrings of the storm and high rivulets of piano for the first first raindrops and then building it all up and it was a very entertaining session and, and he was a very entertaining character he was a, a an actor he still is he's an actor and a composer brilliant piano player and a really wild guy and when we did the session you know between takes he was going medicine boys like like acting like a, a tribesman or something and then the playing weird jazz instrumentals on the piano and then we'd run the tape again he straight back into it and he emerged at the end with his hands bleeding and so this adrian and the piano storm the box set is is a, a, like a cinema verite oh glimpse of him doing his takes i love that Okay. You I, will. I love all right. I, my favorite part of this song is when you say burn all the words and letters and cards that I ever wrote that line. And I love it because when you say it, it's, you say it in like a descend, your voice goes descending in right. its pitch or whatever. Again, I'm not a musician. I don't know what the words are. Yeah, melody drops down. Yes. The melody is dropping down instead of staying stagnant or going up like it had been. So and it's the it's one. Dramatic. Yes, it's the one time in the song where it does that. And that is, again, going back, that's the sprinkle of pixie dust that I think that stands out, that makes you think, oh, I love that part of this song. It's different. It's hitting me differently. What made you decide to do that line that way? It's do you remember? It's instinctive. It's instinctive. Really? It's when yeah. I'm singing the song probably almost every time I ever sang it, and, and the first time I sang it properly on the guitar, I would have had the, just my voice would have wanted to do that. Yeah. It's just instinctive, and I try not to get in the way of that. And that line, that's the best line in the song. Uh, and it was inspired by a friend of mine, a, a, a lady, a visual artist from, from Stockholm called Tony or Tuna Knivestor. And and she she was a Waterboys fan, and we were pen pals. Uh, and she wrote me a letter saying she was really fed up with the paintings she'd been doing, and she'd thrown them all out. And I thought, oh, man, that's so much more impulsive than I would ever be. I would never do that. But I'm going to put it in my song. So I'm going to burn all the words and letters and cards that I ever wrote. It's inspired by her. Love that. Oh, man. Yeah, that's the line that gives me every single time. Um, okay, I want to ask about Old England. Old England, to me, has that Steve Reich feel to it again. Oh, and I wondered okay. if it came, if it sprung from the similar, the same jam session that might have inspired Spirit. No, no. It, you know, it's not so much Steve Reich, that one. It's more my odd piano style. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah, I'm a self-trained piano player, and, and so I use one finger generally for the bottom end, and I use a thumb and two or three fingers for the, the chords. And, and in my pursuit of interesting ways to play the piano, especially as I can't play in the, the technically accepted professional type way, or a trained way, I've invented my own piano rhythms. The whole of the moon rhythm is one. And Old England, which is a sort of, it, the, the, the hands are playing alternative. So a doggy paddle piano. It has a magic to it. And I've used it in many songs. Uh, in fact, it's on Don't Bind the Drum as well. But on Old England, I use it without using the sustain pedals. So it's got a staccato quality that suited the, the 
tone of that song. Uh, so okay. that's where that one comes from. Okay. Um, this is another one that has like man this, so it's like the two columns, kind of like spirit the man this, spirit that. Um, there's the great sax riff in there that kind of breaks it yeah. up. It's yeah. and I love the Marshall sort of the light uh, yes. snare drum, yes. you know, the going along. Played by Pete Thomas of the Attractions. Is it really? That's who's doing that. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so. Possession. Again, this feels another like a song that is being built layer upon layer. We need the the piano part, then we need the snare drum to be building it, then we need the saxophone on top to give it more heft. It was a little more live. The the piano and Carl's bass again on the synthesizer, and the the drum by Pete Thomas. I don't remember whether he just played a snare or whether he had cymbals too. But they were there and and perhaps the the most of the vocal were done live in the studio. And then the sax was added and there are little bells, tubular bells which yes. are played. And there's also a a, a a harmonium sounding synthesizer pad that Carl plays. Okay. Okay. Mm. I love it. Um quote Yeats in here or Yeats or I've always said Yeats. Yeats yes. Yep. You're and you love that guy. What does Yeats mean to you? Uh, well, great poet. I love his poetry. I'm not so much, you know, I'm not not an incredibly obsessed fan of him or anything. Okay, okay. But I, I do love a lot of his poetry, and there's a gravity and drama to his poetry that that is very, to me, is, is very definitive and masterful. Okay, because you do have the album the Yates yeah. album that you made. So I figured you must love him enough to do a whole album about his work. Sorry, I love his poetry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and the man <laughs> is revealed in the poetry. Yes. Yes. Of course. Yes, it is. Yes. Um, now this is, this song is from my understanding, sort of an anti Thatcher song, which yeah. there were, um, there were many from the artists that I respect and admire. were doing a lot of that. What is, What's your memories of the Thatcher period that forced you or inspired you to write this song? Oh, there's one word that sums up her, her tenure as prime minister uh, and, and her influence, callousness. Uh, yeah. She was callous. Yeah. She would make ideological um, policy moves that hurt people and she didn't care. She was callous. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Feels like the whole world is callous these days, does it not? I think she's she's she was one of the people that that brought that in. Yeah, yeah. It. Uh, I mean, I, I like I said, I follow you on Twitter. I know where you stand. You and I are aligned. It's suffocating over here, just yeah. day after day after day. It's no fun. Um, okay, I want to ask you about "Be My Enemy." This one starts out with an odd sound. There's <laughs> what is the sound? It's a, it's it's a, it's me playing sort of military chords on Carl's synthesizer, oh. <clears throat> and and we've rigged it so that every time I press the keys, it triggers a tape, and the tape is applause from a bootleg of Prince Live First Avenue, so that every time I hit a chord, as well as the nice full bloodied chord you get this yes and the moment i stop playing the chord 
the applause stops. So it's it sounds it's it's become a sort of musical shadow yes. of the chord. And then at the very end, I hold a chord, I sustain it for like 10, 12 seconds, and uh-huh. you can you can then recognize that it's applause. Yes. Cool, okay. wasn't it? I now I know because I'm I'm thinking is this song actually done live because after this weird sound effect it you start hearing crowd noise is that real is this an auto a water boys song that's what's going on here is from a from a prince bootleg that's that right. amazing prince, prince live at first avenue the night he recorded the master version of purple rain oh my gosh yeah. you do a I, you do an awesome cover of purple rain by the way did you ever meet him or interact with him in any way? No, no, he never met me either. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, yeah, this is, uh, okay, I wanted to ask you about something. Somewhere along the way, I read that Matthew Seligman might have yeah. played bass. He I, plays on his back, yeah. The, okay, that's what that was my question. I Matthew was on here a couple of times. We became friendly before he died of COVID. Um, what's your memories of Matthew? Well, Matthew was a lovely man, and he was in my pre-Water Boys band. Was he really? Yeah, not for very long. It was a very short-lived band. It was called The Red and the Black, and we had one summer of playing around the London clubs, and Matthew was the bass player. He he knew Anthony, the great Water Boys sax player. Anthony was also in The Red and the Black, and he said, oh, I've got this mate who plays bass. We played together with, with Robin Hitchcock. Yeah. And so and Matthew came along, and we did a bunch of shows together. And then when I put together the Water Boys, he wasn't around or, or whatever, uh, and we'd fallen out of touch. But but when we were recording, we needed someone to come in and play bass and be my enemy. And I thought, let's get Matthew. He was really good at that rhythm. So he came in and played it. I'm yeah. so glad I asked in this particular song. I, I grew to love him. Like I said, I mean, I don't, I, I, we weren't close friends, but I got to know him a little bit on social media like you do. And I, you know, he was on here a couple of times. Such a sweet, sweet man. This is the one song that, for whatever reason, there's no information on Wikipedia about. Um, oh. But it does sound the most punk, you know? It yeah. sounds the, the grittiest. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's in that... It's, it's, it's not quite a pastiche, but it's an updating of the Bob Dylan 65-66 put-down song. When Bob would, would use a, a dum-da-ga-dum-dum-da-ga-dum-da rhythm to sing song like, I don't know, I want to be your lover, baby, or she's your lover now, or um, um, I was 61. He would do these songs in that rhythm. And then he had all these terribly vicious put-down songs. So I thought I'd write a Dylan-esque put-down song in that rhythm, but take it further. Make it a bit more paranoid than Bob's songs ever got at that time. A bit more wild. Uh, and a bit faster, and, and and I even tried to get more rhymes in the last verse than Bob had ever managed to get in a single verse. I think I probably managed it as well. Um, why do you want to be their enemy and have her be your enemy? Enemy too? Well, of course, of course, it's not me that's saying I want to be my be your enemy. It's more a comment on that kind of mindset. You know, on the inner sleeve of the album, there was this uh, emblem of two knights against a shield. One's a white knight, one's a black knight, and the, the 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 motto which I wrote myself is each sees his own side, but no other. So it's more a comment on that kind of mindset. That makes sense. Yeah, I I love this one, and I love where it's at because it it, it there's a nice injection of the punk energy. You mentioning 
Matthew being in your early band, Red and Black, yeah. that I'm guessing is more punk inspired. I'm sure there's, you know, um, closer, closer to the Big Bang, John. Closer yes. to the Big Bang. Three years okay. closer to, to the 1977, big, 76, 77 Big Bang. Yeah, I'm imagining this one harkens back to kind of those early punkier, hungry yeah. days. You know, that's what it feels like to me. All right, trumpets, second to last song. This is what, from my understanding, the first one that was ever played live. I don't know that it was the first one that was ever recorded. Is what's the history of trumpets? And did you always, is that what, like liking this song, is that what made you think, if I can get eight other songs just as good as trumpets, then I've got an album here? It was the first song to be completely written for This Is The Sea. But at the time, I wasn't writing for an album. It was just the latest song I'd written. And I, in fact, I wrote it the night before a radio session. Radio sessions were a wonderful way to try out new songs. And, and we, had, we had several at the BBC who had fantastic studios and beautiful instruments, beautiful grand pianos. And uh, In fact, on our, our radio session where we played the newly written trumpets, I play a grand piano and Carl plays a Celeste which is this beautiful keyboard instrument that makes a sound that it sounds like jewels being clinked together. Beautiful sound. Uh, and, and so Trumpets was written for the radio for a session. Oh, and then I, I, I probably played a couple of times live just because it was a new song. And then I, I must confess, I more kind of forgot about it. Really? And then we started working on the album. And, and then I thought, oh, well, maybe we should try Trumpets. And I tried it a couple of times with a, a full band but it really didn't work. There was a fragility about it that was lost playing it with drums. Uh, and, uh, but I, I'd gone off the song and I'd lost the, I'd lost the spark of it. Okay. And then one day I, I found, I had all, all our tape boxes were in the studio so that I could access them all. And I found there was a, a, a studio version that I'd forgotten about. It's very unusual for me to forget anything that I'd done in a studio. But a year before, back in 84, we'd done a session in Tony Visconti's studio. He wasn't there, but it was his studio in Soho in London, where we'd recorded trumpets for some reason. I don't even remember why. Probably just because it was a new song. Let's record that. Yeah, yeah. Not with an album in mind or anything. And I, so we rolled the tape and it was a perfectly good version, faithful to the way that we'd done it on the radio when it was newly written. Also with Carl playing a Celeste, which we must have hired into the studio. So that that we used that and, and it made it through the record. Ah, interesting. I love the line, your love feels like trumpet sound. I mean, there are countless millions and billions of love songs out there. And I don't know another one that summarizes the feeling of love like that that's the, <laughs> that's right. the only one you know what i mean yeah. yeah and you know we had to resist having a trumpet on it it was too I, little. I was gonna ask you about that <laughs> <laughs> the song trumpets features no trumpets yes yeah. so it's a it's a really romantic song and i'm wondering if it was written for someone or inspired by someone well it could be it could be either about a, a lover or a god okay can yeah be well, again, that's that's the Mike Scott way. Is you never know; it could go either way, romance or spirituality. You know, that's your thing. Um, the sax in this song reminds me a little bit of Steely Dan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh no, I wondered if that 
was the song sound you were going for. I, yeah. In no other song does it remind me of Steely Dan, but in this one it does a little bit. Okay. I don't know what that means. Probably a musical coincidence because I, I never I, I respect the Dan and I like Wiki Don't Lose That Number and a few other uh -huh. tracks that I know, but I don't know they work well enough and I don't know their use of sax at all. No. Okay. And Anthony wouldn't have been a fan. He no, was a I, fan of Bobby Keys. Ah, uh, there you go. Bobby Keys was his idol. Yes. I'm reading a book about Jim Gordon right now for, and uh Bobby Keys is featured in that book. It's really good. Is that a new book? Yes, it's by Joel Selvin, who has written a well, number of other. It. Yes, it's excellent. Um, and there's some Steve Reichian sort of piano. But now they. Definitely. Definitely. But I'm realizing now, Mike, based on what you were saying earlier about the only way that you really know to play piano. It's it's more it's I wonder your natural ability is Reichian because of this fundamental sort of din, 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 like using the yeah. one finger on the one hand and the two, two yeah, or three it's, fingers. It's on the almost other. minimalism. Yes. 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 You know, there are, there are lines on trumpet. There are top lines that I overdubbed on piano. There's one that goes, da, 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 dum, 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 da, dum. And those are very Steve Reich influenced. Yes. I yes. noticed that he had, he, he, he constructed music in, in, unceasing cycles of melody that sound like sort of chains of melody but yeah. there are certain phrases that jump out uh, and and i i wanted to do a waterboy's version of that now i didn't i didn't go for the chains of melody but i would think well all right if, if i want a phrase of melody to jump out i'm going to play the the phrase and yeah. and i realized if i don't play it emotionally I don't play it like in a blues form or with, you know, bent notes or any kind of emotive expression, but I play it deadpan, but I choose the positioning so that it's got emotional effect. That's powerful. And, very and good. I, I, I nailed that on trumpets. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Very much so. Okay. This is the C. Closes it out. Perfect closing song. Reminds me so much of Sweet Thing by Van Morrison, which is... Um, you do a version of Sweet Thing on Fisherman's Blues. There's another version of Sweet Thing on the expanded deluxe version of This is the Sea. Was that a was that a obvious influence? Were you doing a variation on Sweet Thing at that moment? Well, I wasn't seeking to do a variation of Sweet Thing. And and the song This is the Sea is not like Sweet Thing. But no. the rhythm. The yes, rhythm that's it. The rhythm. Yes. I was in love with that rhythm, which I learned from Sweet Thing. Yes, indeed. Okay, okay. Now, I, you don't ever play this song live, or hardly oh, yes, ever. Do. Yes, oh, we do. Oh, do you? Because I read some quote where you're like, you know, I don't, it never really worked live, so I don't do it very often. No, well, that, that's probably an old quote. I, I discovered a new way to do it in 2019. We were at Soundcheck. I don't remember where, some tour were at Sanchez. And I started playing two chords, C and F. This is the C, it's historically always been an E. But I did a C and an F and, and with a very relaxed rhythm. And the band came in and I went up to the microphone and these things you keep came into my mind. I just started saying it. Suddenly, I had a new way of doing this is the C. And we've played it ever since. That oh, good, because I... Years. The only time I've seen you, you were in Denver, probably on that tour. And I'm, I can't remember if you played it at that show. I was don't it, think so. Was it an outdoor show? No, it was an indoor show at, a, at, at the Gothic Theater. And um, I think that was 2019. Maybe it hadn't happened by then. 
that because I don't I feel like I would remember that and I was standing right in front of the stage and you your piano when you came to play the piano to do Hole of the Moon you were like we were like five feet away from each other that was a that's the only time I've only chance that I know of that I've ever had to see the Water Boys and it was life-changing now I discovered this song at the end of Riding Giants or not discovered but that's where it's sort of I rediscovered we should say and the thing that was hitting me with Riding Giants, this excellent surf documentary that was made by Stacy Peralta, is I was connecting these dots. You know, Stacy Peralta, I don't know if you even know who he is, but he and Tony Hawk were a part of this skateboarding crew in the early 80s called the Bones Brigade. And they're the ones who are really responsible for popularizing uh, skateboarding. And Stacy Peralta sort of left the Bones Brigade skateboarding crew to start his own business. And he had a line of skateboarding, I don't know, boards, fashion, whatever, called Powell Peralta. And uh, so he was, next to Tony Hawk, becoming one of the most uh, successful businessmen from capitalizing on skate culture. Then he became a really well-known documentary filmmaker. The reason I mention all of this is because there was a time where people like Stacy Peralta were defining for entire millions and millions of kids what was cool. What how you skated was cool, skating was cool, what you wore was cool, what boards you used were cool, what you listened to, what movies you made, all of it was cool. He was defining coolness. And I keep thinking about the fact that he picked this is the sea to close out his documentary is a is a validation for the coolness the perfection of that song from you i know that's a long preamble but i just i say that because it it's not just a placement in any movie like a rom-com this is someone whose taste is so refined that he thought your song was the right way to close out his movie and i don't know if you even knew i don't know if listeners know that either but that's how i read it of course, I know that it was in the film, and I saw the film a couple of times, and I loved the way that the song was used, but I didn't know all the background that you just yeah. gave me. Thank Yes. He's no. one of the most, or was anyway, second probably to Tony Hawk, the most famous skateboarder of all time, and they were trendsetters. And the fact that he picked your song is more than just this song works in my movie. It's yeah. I know what's cool, and I set trends, and this song works for me. So I think it's more than that. Anyway, um, was the... Where along the line was this song recorded? Was it always intended to be sort of the last song because it fits as the closing sort of denouement yeah. on this album? It was always the title track and it was always going to be the last song. In fact, at one point it was going to be the first song as well because it was a fast oh. version. Oh, a fast really? Stacks, dun, daga, dun, daga, dun. So Stacks Motown soul review version. Wow. Uh, and we, we recorded that. It's on the box set. Okay, good. Um, uh, it's not on the 2004 remaster. Which no, it's is not. I would know. Yes. Yeah. But it's on the box set, and, and it's got a lead guitar by the great Tom Verlaine of the New York band. Television. What? He was, really? he was living, in, living in London at the time, and he came and played on it. And, you know, until Don't Mind the Drum was recorded, that was going to be the opening track, the fast version. And then really? the album's going to close with the slow version. No. Yeah. Oh. I've got to hear this fast version. I love this song. It's one of those ones that 
one I, when I rediscovered it after seeing Riding Giants in the theater, I started putting it on like all my friends' mix CDs and yeah. stuff like that. You know what I mean? It says so much. The the heft of it all says so much. Well, you know what? The fast version they did a, a vinyl edition for Record Store Day a few months ago, and you can find it on YouTube. Really? A- oh, good. Okay, I'll go look. Um, I uh, I mean. If you can't tell, I love this album and I love everything you do, Mike. Oh, oh one last question I wanted to, the, yeah. the cover of the album. Yeah. What What's the thing you have in your pocket? It's a feather. That's what I thought. Does what it mean anything? I can't remember if it was a Native American feather from some kind of piece of regalia. I don't remember. But it was there. And in the picture, I'm putting it in my pocket. Yeah. And Lynn Goldsmith was the photographer and it was in her studio in New York. And we'd been taking pictures for an hour or so. And I had a feeling as I put this in the pocket, there was just a feeling about the position that felt right. And just, just as she snapped the camera, she said, there's your cover. Yeah. 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 Um, some covers, some versions of the album have the Water Boys sort of water logo on it, and it some don't. Logo, yes, yes. Had that logo appeared before that album? I don't remember. Yes, it's used on the first couple of albums as well. Is it? Okay. It was, I couldn't designed, it was designed at my request as something that would symbolize water or waves by a, a lady at the a lady called Stephanie Nash at Island Records. Okay. I don't have hard copies of the first two albums. I have hard copies of several others after that. So I wasn't sure. Um, okay. What's your last, your lingering memory? I, I think it was recorded in several different studios. I normally like to ask who else was in the studio next to you or, you know, it, did you pass in the hallway or at the urinal while recording? But you recorded in so many different places. Maybe that's not a memory. But what's no, your last? La- oh, tell, tell me. You- i tell you a funny memory. Right at the end of the album, we were mixing. It was the very last track to be mixed. And it was Be My Enemy. Uh-huh. And we were in a studio um, called Battery. And this was in Willesden in North London. And it was an old art deco cinema that someone had, had been closed down and someone had developed it. And there were two studios. And we were in one of them. I was in with Mick Glossop mixing overdubbing and mixing Be My Enemy uh-huh. uh, and maybe another couple of tracks because we seem to be in there for about four or five days and in the other studio was Jerry Dammers do you know who he yes who, yes who, of course <laughs> from the specials from the specials <laughs> and and he he was producing a band and the, the only sound we ever heard coming out of this studio was a bass drum he seemed to spend a whole week EQ in a bass drum but anyway anyway as you went into the studio in the foyer of the studio was one of these um rolling um, LED displays that gave a message and it said, welcome to Battery Studios. And, and there was a keyboard with it. And, and I looked at the keyboard. And I, worked out, I worked out how to change the message. <laughs> so, you know, the Live Aid concert had just happened a couple of weeks earlier and it was this amazing sense of optimism, you know, Gorbachev was in in Russia. There was talk of Nelson Mandela coming. In fact, in fact Jenny Dammers had written that great song, Free, Free Nelson, Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And so there was this sense that things were changing. So I changed the, the, the LED thing to say, a golden age is coming. So it went <laughs> round and round. A golden age is coming. Yes. And then I went to the studio. And the next morning when I came into the studio, someone had tampered with it. Someone had changed it and replaced it with bollocks. 
<laughs> and I've never had any doubt that it was Jerry Dammers. He was probably the only other person in that studio that felt entitled enough, like me, to change the, the LED. Well, the funny thing is, funny thing, four years, four, four or five years later, Nelson Mandela was free. Uh-huh. And they had this amazing concert at Wembley, the Nelson Mandela Day concert. Uh-huh. And then it was the great man himself on the stage. Well, you know who else was on that stage? Jerry Dammers. He was invited to come and do Free Nelson Mandela in front of 100,000 people with Mandela in the audience. <laughs> and I remember watching it on TV, and he walked out on the stage with his mouth like this. And he went up to the microphone and he said, Never in my wildest <laughs> dreams. And I thought, fucking right, mate. You thought it was fucking bollocks, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the best. <laughs> oh, man, my sides hurt from laughing at this. I've never, oh, I've never met him. I hope to meet him one day and talk about that. <laughs> that is genius. I love it. Well, Mike, thank you for all the good you've put in the world. I love you so much. Oh, I thought of one other thing. You posted this on, on Twitter the other day. You were mentioning if there were any other rhythms named after musicians, yeah, like yeah. the Bo Diddley rhythm. The one that I thought of, it's not necessarily named after, but I I don't know if this counts. I thought of Nile Rodgers. Nile Rodgers, kind of that guitar sound that he has on his guitar, yeah. it's not, not called the Nile Rodgers Sound, but if I heard it in a song, I would think that sounds like the Nile Rogers guitar yeah, sound. It's more a style, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just, yeah. I, it got me thinking. So I wanted yeah. to comment on that. Last well, thing. Oh, uh, yeah, go on. Well, I was going to say, I hold out hope that Here We Go Again will be picked as the theme song to a TV show at some point. Oh, wouldn't that be great? If only. <laughs> it needs to, it, it is tailor made. Like, yeah. it's a great song, but it sounds like the the theme song to, I don't even know what, you know what I mean? Pinky Blinders or Black Mirror or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. I'll tell my manager. Do, I, I tell him I co-sign on this. Anyway, I love you, Mike, more than anything. Thanks, Thank John. you so Thanks much. so much. So All right, long. have a good one. We'll see ya. All righty, there you have it, the great Mike Scott. Again, folks, I hope you will check out 1985, the full box set of This is the Sea. If you are, well, first and foremost, if you are a Waterboys fan, you should have the original album no matter what. You should probably pick up the, if you're a fan of that, which who isn't because it's probably their their best album, one of the greatest albums ever made, if you ask me, then you'll want the deluxe version as well. Just so much good stuff in there. And if you're unfamiliar about any of this, go check it out because they deserve it. They're incredible. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich. Folks, we have a book club that should be coming out next week because the book is coming out, out next week. And then we have another deep dive that's really fun. Um, that'll see the light of day here soon. Uh, but anyway, thanks to everybody who listens, and thanks especially to Mike Scott. Talk to you later.